Remain standing for our sermon text from Jeremiah 29. Again, hear the inerrant word of God. Now, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah, the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams, which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to understand it, to to do it, and through it to know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I'm putting my John series off one week. We'll start it next Sunday instead of this Sunday because I wanted to preach this sermon. Sort of a visionary sermon. Um, And I thought it would go well at the beginning of our class, our new members or inquirers class. That starts today as well as we talk about some of these things in the week to come that Jeremiah talks about to 
the exiles who were taking, taken to Babylon. Let's back up and do a little history lesson here. In the year 605 B.C., many of the citizens of Judah, in particular the citizens of Jerusalem, Judah's the southern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem's the capital. Many of the citizens there were stripped from their homeland and taken to Babylon. Among these Jerusalem citizens taken into Babylonian captivity was the prophet Daniel. So this was 605 B.C. Well, eight years later in 597 B.C., remember you have to go backward when you're B.C., the Babylonians came back to Judah and captured a second wave of exiles, citizens. The second wave of Jerusalem citizens were taken, and among them was the prophet Ezekiel. That's 597. About 10 years later, the Babylonians came back around 587 B.C., a third time. But this third time, they didn't just take captives. This time, they took captives and they destroyed Jerusalem. They burned the temple to the ground. The temple of Solomon had been built over 400 years earlier, but it was just completely decimated. But you see, ultimately, it was not the Babylonians who sent Judah into exile. It wasn't the Babylonians who destroyed Jerusalem, the capital city, and the temple, burning it to the ground. It was ultimately God who sent Judah into exile. The Babylonians were just God's tool. God is the one who destroyed Jerusalem. He burned down the temple, which had become no longer a place of true worship because of Israel's idolatry, disobedience, God judged them. By 605 B.C., when the first wave of citizens were taken, Israel and Judah, the north and the south, had disobeyed God in just about every way imaginable. They had broken covenant with God in about every way possible. Their marriage vows they had broken with Yahweh. They had rejected God in their hearts, in their words, in their actions, in their worship. They had broken the covenant that God graciously established with them. And so during these 18 years or so, these three waves from 605 to 587, God sent the Babylonian army to Judah. Now you remember about a century and a half earlier, he had sent the Assyrian army into the northern kingdom. Well, now the southern kingdom is getting a similar treatment. The Babylonians took people into exile and they would bring them into their culture. They wouldn't go and subdue and send an army, the standing army, to stay in that place. They would bring the citizens with them. This was God's judgment against Judah. Now, God had warned Israel in the scriptures nearly a thousand years earlier, back in Deuteronomy 28, that if they had ever decided, if they ever decided to reject God, 
to persist in disobedience, to refuse to listen to his prophets, calling them to repentance, then he would drive them out of their land that he had given them. He would send them into a nation whose language you do not understand. That's one of the judgments, the curses in Deuteronomy 28, among many, many others. The kingdom of Babylon was the nation whose language, whose tongue, God's people did not understand. In the midst of God's judgment against Judah during the 590s B.C., at some point after the second wave, where Ezekiel was taken, Jeremiah sent a letter to the captives in Babylon. It's recorded in Jeremiah 29. The letter is not really from Jeremiah. It's actually from God. Jeremiah writes it down, writing in Jerusalem, and he sends it to the Israelites in exile. Now, why did they need this letter? Why did the exiles in Babylon need a letter from God, a letter from a prophet speaking for God? Because God wanted them to know a few things, a couple of things. But one of the things he wanted them to know was that he had not forsaken them. He wanted them to know that this had a purpose. He wanted them to know that their faithfulness in captivity was important and that it would reap rewards. God was with them. He exiled them for a reason. That's why verse 11 says, in verse 11, God reminds the exiles, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans of welfare or peace, not for evil. To give you hope, to give you a future. And God's message to them over 2,500 years ago is similar to his message to us. We don't live in the same exact situation, the same exact culture, but there are a lot of similarities that we're going to talk about between the exiles in Babylon and us. But his message is the same. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. It's not over. I haven't cast you aside and forgotten about you. I still love you. Now, yes, you are experiencing my chastisement, my judgment. You are undergoing the biggest trial of your life. But there's purpose behind it. And if you respond to this judgment, this test, with faithfulness and fruitfulness, you will be blessed. I'm giving you my word. The path to blessing is looking to me and doing what I tell you and being faithful even in this unfortunate situation. Yes, you messed up big time, Judah. Yes, you broke the covenant that I graciously gave to you and to no other nation besides you. Yes, you're going to have to be here for a while. But I have big plans ahead for you. You have a future and a hope. You're still my people. I'm going to keep my promises. And you still have a job to do. The people in Babylon still had a job to do. That was hard for them to grasp. That 
their job was in, in Israel. But their job was to be salt and light in Babylon now. The people of Israel had really never done a good job at that anyway, right? Being salt and light to the world. God, God called them out of the world to be his witnesses to the world, to the nations, to the peoples, to be his priests on behalf of the other nations. But they failed in that mission. They had become ingrown. They had become unconcerned about world missions. They had no desire to reach out to the other nations at all. But now, God was forcing them into the nations. The Babylonian exile, from one perspective, is God's way of getting his people to go out and do what they were called to do anyway. They were supposed to be a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19 says, to witness God's glory to the peoples. They were supposed to be a light to the world. Jerusalem was supposed to be a city on a hill that could not be hidden. Israel's purpose going all the way back, not just to Exodus 19, but to Genesis 12, when Abram was called, was to bless the nations and to point them to the one true God. So it's as if God is saying to Israel, since you failed to do what I called you to do, I'm going to kick you out of your homeland and force you to live in a place where you can be a light to the world. So God took thousands of people, thousands of citizens in Jerusalem and in the broader area there, Judah more broadly, and planted them in Babylon. So just think about what this meant for these deported citizens. These people had grown up for many, many generations in Judah. Most of them lived in or around Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was where the center of their culture and their religion was. They shared the same history, the same ethnicity. Everyone thought the same way, practiced the same religion, spoke the same language, and shared the same cultural assumptions. But suddenly, thousands of them are being forced to live in Babylon. A city where there existed all kinds of different ideas and religions and cultures and subcultures and languages and nationalities. And so the exiles faced a lot of the same kinds of questions we face. How do we live in a pluralistic, fragmented society like Babylon? How do we live faithfully in a culture that is hostile to our faith, our way of life? How do we live in a nation where our beliefs and our values and our convictions are not recognized or even welcomed? How do we live in a city where we don't fit in? Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Jeremiah 29 is important for us to reflect on because we live in a similar culture. A similar context. There's overlap here, if not identity. There's overlap between the two. We live in a pluralistic 
society that is becoming increasingly hostile to our faith as well. In our country, in our city, there exist competing ideas, competing political agendas, competing philosophical assumptions, religions, values. And so we need to ask ourselves some of the same questions. How do we live in a place where our ideals are not prized? How do we live faithfully where we seem to fit in less every day? Where even many other Christians think differently from the historic Christian faith, many churches and Christians who claim to follow Jesus. What should our stance be toward southwest Missouri, toward the city of Springfield? How should we how should we live and engage our smaller communities? Jeremiah's letter to the exiles helps us to think through these questions, these important questions. The exiles in Babylon had three possible responses to their situation. They had three options, and we're going to talk about these three options. Jeremiah's letter gave them two options. I talked about two of these very explicitly. But their first option, which is implicit, is assimilation. By assimilation, I mean being absorbed into the Babylonian culture. That's the first possible response. This was the response that the Babylonians were hoping for, what they wanted. Cultural assimilation means becoming just like the culture around you. It means taking on the characteristics and the values and the thought patterns of the city or the nation that you're in. And that's what Babylon wanted. That's what, that's what their goal was in bringing all these exiles from various nations. They, they had exiles from all over the world. And the goal was for them to assimilate socially, culturally, intellectually, economically. That's why, remember, Daniel and his friends were sent to school. They were sent to, you know, Babylon U, Babylon University. Babylonians wanted to indoctrinate the best and the brightest with their history, their rituals, their philosophies, their interpretation of everything, their intellectual paradigms, their values. See, the more these exiles felt at home in Babylon the more they identified with the Babylonian culture, the less likely they would be to rebel or to try to go back home. The goal was for them to become productive Babylonian citizens. Babylonians were smart. They didn't just go around kicking people out of their lands. They didn't just deport people from their homes and countries and tell them not to come back. Other empires had actually tried that, but it didn't work as well. The deported people would always come back madder and more motivated than ever. Nor did the Babylonians move into Jerusalem and, and, and subjugate the, the city or the nation. Other empires had tried that as well, but it wasn't as successful. 
It's difficult to go into a city or a nation forced to enforce people to change their lifestyle and to live as slaves in their own land. Makes them upset. They look for the first opportunity to revolt against the occupying force. The Babylonians, in their imperial genius, brought their subjects out of their own lands and encouraged them, gave them opportunities to assimilate into the Babylonian culture. Not expulsion, not subjugation, but assimilation. Ingenious. They brought exiles to their empire, their home, to their job markets, to their social structures, their forms of entertainment, their system of values, their worldview. And so the exiled people of God had the choice, as did all the other exiles, of assimilation. Many chose that. They had the choice of becoming Babylonian in their way of living and thinking. So cultural assimilation is the first option. The second option that Jeremiah speaks to more explicitly is separation. This was the response that the false prophets were calling for. Cultural separation means not having anything to do with the surrounding culture. To be a separatist means to fence yourself off from people around you who don't believe like you, who don't live like you, who don't have your values and your worldview. Religious separatists, they don't like to engage with the world really at any level. They long for the day when they won't have to deal with anyone except people just like them. Separation is the opposite of assimilation in one sense, but it's not a better option. Assimilation entails an unhealthy love of the culture. Separation entails an unhealthy disdain for the culture. Both are wrong. Cultural separation is what the false prophets were encouraging these exiles to do. And that's one of the major reasons that this letter needed to be written. In Jeremiah 28, chapter before, we didn't read it, but in Jeremiah 28, the false prophets were telling the exiles to just just hang in there for another year or two, maybe, because God's going to destroy Babylon and he's going to bring us back to Judah. Don't don't have anything to do with with Babylon. You'll be out of that God forsaken place soon. In Jeremiah 28, verses 2 and 3, the the false prophet Hananiah says this. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two full years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. So just two more years. Okay, hang in there. But this message from the false prophet directly contradicted God's message through Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 27, so if you go back a chapter again, God had told the people that they would be in Babylon for a long time. And then again in Jeremiah 29, which we read, he he comes right out and says exactly how long. In verses 8 and 9, 
He says, do not let your false prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams, which you cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. The reality is that they're going to be there for a long time. Seventy years is what he says. One theologian discusses why the message of these false prophets was so harmful to the exiles. And I want to quote him here. Their message, quote, their messages and dreams, besides being false, were destructive. False dreams interfere with honest living. As long as the people thought that they might be going home at any time, it made no sense to engage in committed, faithful work in Babylon. If there was a good chance that they would soon get back all they had lost, there was no need to to develop a life of richness, texture, and depth where they were. Since their real relationships were back in Jerusalem, they could be casual and irresponsible in their relationships in exile. They weren't going to see these people much longer anyhow. Why bother planting gardens? That is the that is backbreaking work, and they would probably be out of there before harvest time. Why learn the business practices of the culture? That is demanding. They would get along with odd jobs here and there. End quote. Another word for separation or separatism is tribalism. The false prophets were encouraging tribalism. Tribalism is only interested in the well-being of me and my tribe. Tribalism only interacts with the world if the world has something to offer me and my clan. Tribalism or separatism has no feelings Toward the broader society. It doesn't care about the wider community that exists outside of the tight circle of friends and family and like-minded people. A tribalist is only really concerned about how to achieve his own personal dreams. Okay, so the first possible response to the exile is cultural assimilation. Becoming just like the culture. The second possible response is cultural separation or tribalism, which is having nothing to do with the culture. And what these two have in common is that neither one is actually actually interested in others, other people. In our neighbors, neither one is mission minded. Others focused and neither one is seeking to glorify God and to build his kingdom above all. In each case, the focus is on my well-being, my welfare, my happiness, my contentment. But the exiled Israelites had a third option. Their third possible response was to do what God says in Jeremiah 29. Listen as I reread verses 5 to 7. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. 
and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. This ought to be our vision as a church body. This ought to be your vision as a individual Christian, as a family, a Christian family, this third option. And what Jeremiah or God is saying is don't waste your time pining for the good old days. Don't spend your time wishing you were somewhere else doing something else. I put you here, and this is where you need to be for as long as I keep you here, and it's going to be a while. Build houses, plant gardens, have children and grandchildren. Get plugged into the society. Get to know the place where God has sent you. Be for it. Don't decrease, but increase. Multiply in number. Continue doing that. Don't be absorbed into the culture, but instead seek to transform the culture through your faithfulness, through your work. And as your tribe increases, don't become tribalistic, but instead get involved in your community. Seek the peace of the city where I have sent you. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. Why? Because in its peace, you will have peace. The word translated peace in our Bible in our English Bibles is the Hebrew word shalom. One of the other English translations uses the word welfare to translate shalom. Peace is probably better, the best translation, but we must remember that shalom means more than our English word peace. That's why that one translation tries to use a different word to make us think beyond our word peace. It's hard to translate in the English into one English word. When we think of peace, we might think of the absence of turmoil and hostility. We think of serenity, tranquility, inner calm. But shalom is far richer than that. The Hebrew word shalom has more texture than our English word peace. Shalom means thriving in every aspect of life and culture. Shalom is a comprehensive word. It it occurs in a person when that whole person is thriving, flourishing. It occurs in a city when every dimension of that city is flourishing. See, shalom is not just the absence of war. Shalom is not just inner Peace, it includes those things. Shalom is when God's grace has transformed every aspect, every dimension of a person or a culture or a family. A society that is experiencing God's shalom is a society that is helping the helpless, caring for the fatherless and the widows, defending the disenfranchised, Upholding God's law. Carrying out justice. Bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Shalom is something that only God can bring about ultimately. And God brings about shalom through his people. Through us. 
through his church, through his city, set on a hill. God brings about shalom through you and me. But first, you see, we have to have shalom. You have to have shalom. You can't take shalom to the world if you do not have shalom yourself. God does not bring about shalom through you when you are assimilating, when you are being just like the culture around you. God will not use you to bring shalom to the world if you are infatuated with the world. God cannot use you to bring about shalom if you talk like the world and think like the world and drink like the world and laugh at the world's jokes and use social media the way the world uses social media and watch the same movies and shows that the world watches and have the same priorities of the world with no distinctions. If you have assimilated to the world, you won't really have God's shalom and so you can't give it. But neither does God bring shalom through you when you separate yourself from the world. God will not use you in the world if you never leave the comfort of your own tribe. If all you care about is your own small circle and you're not seeking the shalom of your wider community that God has planted you in in his providence. That's the case. You don't have God's shalom and you can't give it. God brings about shalom in you first and then through you when you are living in and for the world. See, it's not enough to say that we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. That's true. We need to go further. We are called to be in the world and for the world, but not of the world. Being in and for the world requires getting outside of our Christian bubble intentionally. Being in and for your city means Understanding that the, that the city does not exist for the church, but rather the church for the city. Being in and for your community, wherever you live, involves more than having polished ideas, finely tuned theological arguments. It involves also being faithful to the people that God has put you Next to. It involves more than writing essays and winning debates on the internet, internet. It even involves more than sound theology and biblical worship. Though that is at the foundation. Being in and for the world must be go beyond talking about the problems of our neighbors and our city and our nation. And our government. Being in and for the world requires being content where God has put you. It means loving, truly, your inconsiderate neighbor, or maybe even your inconsiderate brother or sister in Christ. It means praying for the state more than you scorn it. Being in and for the world means Entering into the world and its problems. That's what Jesus did. Not because you're infatuated with it. 
but because you love the people God has put in your world the way Christ does. The children of Israel were in geographical exile. Their exile was traumatic. It was scary. They had been uprooted from the place where they and their families for countless generations, their fathers and grandfathers, had been. Their homes and their identity had been stripped away from them virtually overnight. But Israel's exile is just an extreme and more violent form of what all of us really experience from time to time. We all experience exile. For example, we experienced exile on the day we were born when God took us out of our mother's comfortable, acclimatized womb and violently ushered us into to this cold world where we get hungry and cranky and cold and hot and lonely and sick, where we suffer teething and growing pains and rashes and where we must endure car seats and strangers and various other people who are not mom. Some of you may feel like you are in exile even in your own family, maybe even in your church. Maybe you feel exiled in your marriage Some of you may not have any close friends, which can help you feel that you're not exiled from humanity, which is how you feel. More than one of you probably feels exiled in your workplace or in your school or in your neighborhood. Maybe it's because you're different. Who knows? But you just don't seem to fit in. Some of you face severe loneliness and often feel like God has exiled you from not just humanity, but from his presence. That's how the exiles in Babylon felt, actually. That was what they were struggling with at bottom was a sense of God's abandonment. Same that God had rejected them forever. It sent them out of Judah, away from Jerusalem, far from the temple where God lived. But in the midst of their despair, God sends them a letter, a note, through his prophet Jeremiah. And he reminds them, not just that they have a future, but they have a hope, and that they get to come back to Jerusalem in 70 years, although that's part of it. Even before That time comes even during these 70 years. They have a job to do. They have a calling from God to live out every day. And God will be with them as they are faithful in their mission in Babylon. God will hear their prayers and answer their prayers as they endeavor to live in and for The Babylonians, as they seek the shalom of Babylon and pray for the shalom of their new city and their new neighbors. God, in his perfect providence, has put them in Babylon and God has not forsaken them there 
is just as close to them as he was when they lived in Jerusalem. God has not forsaken his people. He never forsakes his people. Even in judgment, even when his people are dealing with the ramifications of their own sin. I'm going to close with another quote from the same theologian, Eugene Peterson. Daily we face decisions about how we will respond to these exile conditions. We can say, I don't like it. I want to be where I was 10 years ago. How can you expect me to throw myself into what I don't like? That would be sheer hypocrisy. What sense is there in taking risks and tiring myself out among people I don't even like in a place where I have no future? Or we can say, I will do my best with what is here. Far more important than the climate of this place, the economics of this place, the neighbors of this place, is the God of this place. God is here with me. What I am experiencing right now is on ground that was created by him and with people whom he loves. It is just as possible to live out the will of God here as in any place else. I am full of fear. I don't know my way around. I have much to learn. I'm not sure I can make it. But I had feelings like that back in Jerusalem. Change is hard. Developing intimacy among strangers is always a risk. Building relationships in unfamiliar and hostile surroundings is difficult. But if that is what it means to be alive and human, I will do it. There are two kinds of people. Some look at life and complain of what is not there. Others look at life and rejoice in what is there. Will we live on the basis of what we don't have or on the basis of what we do have? Let's pray and ask for God's help in doing this. Father, help us through the spirit of your son, Jesus, to be faithful in the place where you have planted us. In your good providence. Help us to live faithfully as resident aliens. Who are citizens of heaven. Give us the grace that we need to do this in Jesus name. Amen.